0: Good morning. Hey, if you're a guest with us, uh, we want to welcome you. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. I'd love to meet you, answer any questions you might have, help you get connected here at New Hope, just see how we can serve you and uh, your family. And so thanks for being here this morning. Hey, Jess, uh, forgot to mention, uh, I think one of the coolest parts of VBS is at the very end of VBS, after the second um, performance of all the little kids, we had uh, one of the kids that was at VBS uh, baptized into Christ, he gave his life to Jesus as a result of VBS. I just think that's the coolest thing uh, in the world. So Colton Kincaid is a—it's uh, a really neat moment uh, for his family, really for our church family. When you give the VBS, I mean, there's a party in heaven, not just out on the lawn uh, on Friday. So, hey, we're starting a new series in the uh, First and Second Kings. We're going to be studying the life of Elijah. And uh, I want to fill you in a little bit on why we decided to do this. Uh, One of the things, uh, it's kind of birthed out of a concern that I've had uh, for many people as they're um, in church listening to preaching, Bible study, doing different things, is we're not communicating uh, necessarily uh, the importance of the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And so there's a lot of talk about that in our culture. And one of the things that really stands out to me is uh, this truth that when you're reading the Bible, every single page points to Jesus. Every single page of your Bible points to him and directs you to Jesus. And so when you're reading your Bible on your own and you're doing your devotions and you're reading through different things, you're sitting through uh, Bible studies and such, or you're listening to preaching, every sermon should get you to him. Because every passage points directly to Jesus. He's the spotlight. He's the big idea. He's the central focus of what's going on. And so when you read your Bible, you see throughout history how that is the case. I mean, right off the bat, after Adam and Eve sin and are separated from God, God institutes what's called the law. And with the law uh, came this ability, if you would fulfill the law, to have a relationship with God, except the problem was the people broke the law. So then a sacrificial system is instituted, and these animals are sacrificed, and the blood would be the atonement for the people, and so a priest would uh, have these animals sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. The problem was the priests themselves became um, selfish and given into their own sin. So they think, okay, well, what's next? Well, these judges, they'll come and they'll uh, dispute different things among us, except the book of Judges tells us that no matter how many judges came their way to lead them to God, the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so the people of God thought, well, we'll get a king. That's what we need. We need a king. And so we're going to pick the tallest, strongest, the most handsome guy possible. He's going to be our king. The problem was that king himself was corrupted by his sin and failed because of his selfishness. And so the story then shifts to the prophets. Well, maybe these prophets will come, and the prophets will come and call all of God's people back. And that sounded like a really good idea, except the people killed the prophets. And so you begin to see, as you're reading your Old Testament, you're reading through the Bible, this echo from the heart of God that is saying, we need a better law keeper. We need a better judge. We need a better king. We need a better prophet. We need a better priest. And everything points to the hill on Calvary. The cross that stood on the hill. And Jesus being the better lawkeeper, the better judge, the better king, the better priest, the better prophet. Because he fulfilled what everyone before him was incapable of fulfilling. And so the, the purpose being, we want you to see that every single page of your Bible really is pointing you to seeing Jesus with more clarity. Which means the point can't be you. But the hero of your story can't be you. And when preaching tries to tell you that you have it within yourself and you have the willpower, you have the strategic ability to think your way to different things and God wants you to have your best life now, it is so far off course because you do not have the ability to do that. And the whole point of scripture, the whole point of it all points you to that truth, that our dependency must be on God. And so we're going to see that in the life of Elijah as we walk through this This character in the Bible. We're going to see that, yes, Elijah did a lot of really cool stuff and we're going to study those things that he did all summer long, except all of them are a picture of what was to come. All of it points to Jesus. He is the big idea. He is the point of it all. And so this morning I want to pray for us before we jump in and we'll begin to learn where Elijah's story starts out and why certain things happen. You're going to notice the theme is carrying on the call because Elijah had someone under him named Elisha. And he would pass on the ministry to him. But but really, what's being illustrated there is not just the idea of passing on the baton, like, hey, you're up next, take it and run, which is a part of our vision as a church. Uh, The real picture here is you have to start in the right place. And Elijah's story starts in this kind of weird place that teaches us a really valuable lesson. Let's pray for God to make it clear, and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this morning. My prayer is simple. As we open your word, would you speak clearly to us? Would you have us to remember what you want us to remember through the working of your spirit? Have your word change us. And we pray for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. the had a story told of a, a guy who was a woodcutter by trade and was looking for work. And he found a job that was being offered. The pay was good. The conditions were good. And so he decided he was going to go ahead and take the job. And he met with his now boss and The boss gave him all of his equipment, safety equipment, his axe, and pointed him to the part of the forest that he needed to go in and work in. First day of work, he shows up and he says, I'm going to do the best job that I can. So he got there before everybody else. He got to his section of the forest and began to work all day long. At the end of the day, he'd cut down 18 trees. And this impressed the foreman to the point that he went up to this guy and said, man, that's good work. Keep it up. Keep working like that. And so the next day he thought, man, i got to keep this guy pleased with me. And so he woke up earlier than everybody else and he got out into the woods and he worked as hard as he could, only this time he realized after the end of the day he'd only cut down 15 trees. He's like, man, I must be a lot more tired than I thought I was. And so the third day, he says, I'm going to go to bed before the sun even goes down. I'm going to make sure I eat right. I'm going to get up. I'm going to feel good. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to impress this guy. And so he does that. He wakes up super early that next day. He gets out into the woods. He begins to work hard. And he realizes at the end of the day, he can only cut down half of the trees he did before, cutting down only seven. The next day, it was five and then three. And then on that last day, he's working as hard as he can all day long to cut down his second tree, and he's thinking, I'm going to get fired. And so he goes to his boss, and he says, look, I just need you to know I'm working as hard as I possibly can. I'm putting all the effort in, and I'm just not getting the results that I had hoped for. And the foreman on the job looks at him and says, hey, when was the last time you sharpened your ax? He says, Sharpen my ax? man. I have no time to do that. I was working hard to cut down these trees to try to get the job done. I haven't sharpened my ax. And after a little while, the foreman looked at him and said, hey, when the ax gets dull, You have to spend double the energy to obtain half the results. That's the story of Elijah. That's the beginning of Elijah's story. It's a call for us to make sure that the axe is sharp, that we're not depending on our own cleverness in this life, that we're not working harder and putting more effort into things. And maybe you felt this kind of pressure to live like that, like a Christian. Like you're just supposed to do all these things, and so you get up early, and you try to do all the right thing, and you're just putting all of your effort and your energy into it, but you're not making the traction that you wanted to make. And the beginning of Elijah's story is really a pattern that we're going to see all throughout Scripture today that really calls us all to say, you can't do this in your own strength. You can't live a life that God's pleased with in your own strength and ability. And why is that? Where is it that we should start then? And Elijah's story is going to call us to that. Now, if you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to open it up. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat that's in front of you or nearby. Grab that. That's our gift to you. You keep that Bible with you. And it'll be the same translation that you'll see on the screens. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, 1 Kings 17, while you're getting there, let me fill you in on a little bit of the background uh, that will help us pick up in chapter 17. First and 2 Kings is two separate books in your Bible, but originally that's just one book. So it would be the book of Kings, and so we may reference it in the coming weeks that way. It's just the book of Kings. And this book really tells the continued story of a promise that was made to uh, King David in 2 Samuel. And this promise that was made to him was, hey, from your line, there's going to be ultimately a king that would reign on a throne forever. And what that promise is saying is, from your line, David, will come the Messiah. Well, the book of Kings, First and Second Kings in your Bible, It's just the story of king after king after king after king that followed that promise, showing us that none of them fulfilled the promise that was made to David. Just king after king after king. As a matter of fact, a little bit before where we're going to pick up in the story, uh, the nation of Israel is divided into two separate kingdoms. It's a divided kingdom at this point. To the north you had Israel, and to the south you had Judah, and they were ruled by two different sets of uh, authorities. And uh, we're just one generation back from a king named Omri. And and King Omri had this uh, season of prosperity ruling over Israel, the northern kingdom. I mean, so much prosperity that he was having good relationships with other nations. He was bringing in tons of funds. There was lots of physical prosperity going on in the land, and they were at a time of peace. They were at war with no one for an extended amount of time. It was an incredible time. Then his son, Ahab, comes into the picture. And Ahab, the son of Omri, comes and he continues this season of prosperity for his people. And they're leading through all kinds of revolutionary things. As a matter of fact, archaeology is uh, confirmed. Historians will tell you that the carpentry that was done during the reign of Ahab was unparalleled in all the world. So you got to think, the prosperity went from nationally all the way down to the smallest thing like building furniture was done with such excellence. Things were just really good under Ahab's reign. And so if you're a historian, you're looking at that, and a historian might say, I mean, that's an incredible leadership there. I mean, this guy has led this entire nation to such prosperity. That is top-notch leadership, except the Bible seems to go against that a little bit. It says, hey, there was something about both Omri and about Ahab that would say that they're not godly leaders. They might be good leaders in the eyes of the world and have done some incredible things, but they are not leaders that God was pleased with. As a matter of fact, look at how Ahab is described in chapter 16, verse 33, right before where we're going to pick up. It says this, Ahab made an Asherah, like a false god, an item. And Ahab did more, so he he did more to provoke the the God of Israel's anger than any king that had come before him. So this guy was twisted and crooked. And what he was doing was so selfishly motivated, so greedy, that it provoked God to anger during the season because he was more crooked and twisted than any king that had come before him. As a matter of fact, chapter 16 tells us that he falls in love with a woman named Jezebel. That's the first red flag, okay? Don't name your kid Jezebel. Um, (laughs) So he falls in love with Jezebel. Well, Jezebel comes from another land and she worships a god named Baal. And Baal was the god of weather. He was the rider of the clouds. He controlled the rain. And so she has this... Deep worship for Baal and Ahab and Jezebel end up getting married. Now, here, here's just a pause real quick. This is a case study for the importance of choosing your spouse wisely. See, Ahab could have had the opportunity to be swayed the other direction, but he wasn't thinking through who he was marrying. He was selfish and greeting and just going after what he wanted. So if you have a child or a grandchild or you're somebody who's in that season where you're looking to get married sometime soon, watch out for the Jezebels. <laughs> And the Bible's clear, as funny as that is, the Bible is clear that when you're uneasily yoked spiritually, it will wreak havoc on your life. That's exactly what happened to Ahab. Jezebel persuades him to start worshiping Baal and begins to devote his heart to Baal. And he worships Baal and she is so devoted to this false worship. She is so deceived And she begins to make such horrible decisions, wicked, greedy, evil decisions to hurt other people to support her worship of Baal. And she convinces Ahab, the king of Israel, that the state religion of all of Israel should be worshiping Baal. And he sets up an altar to this false god in the capital city of Samaria. And now God's anger is pointed directly at them for worshiping a god other than him. And all the people are beginning to follow this. You see, you learn this lesson before we even get to Elijah. This powerful lesson, this inescapable truth that what rules your heart will direct your life. We can see that in the life of Ahab. The very thing that ruled in his heart was directing his life away from God. And now God's anger comes, and now we're going to see how this plays out as Elijah enters the picture, chapter 17, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of in in Gilead comes to Ahab, this king, this crooked king, and he declares this. is what he says to him. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, depart from here, he's talking to Elijah, and turn eastward to hide yourself in the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook that I have commanded, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So it got weird. It's like, okay, I get it, I get it, ravens? All right, it got a little bit awkward there for a second. But Elijah comes on the scene out of nowhere. We don't know a lot about his history, we don't know much about him, but we do know that he's a prophet. And in the Bible, a prophet was not a future predictor or a fortune teller. Uh, In the Bible, a prophet is simply someone who spoke on behalf of God. So he would come on behalf of God and speak to the people. And more often than not, it was to call them away from idolatry, worshiping something other than God, and away from their own personal sin that was separating them from God. And so Elijah comes on the scene, and picture this, just for a minute. Don't let this be lost on you. This is a historical event that took place. He comes and he speaks to Ahab, this crooked, twisted, greedy, selfish king, and he looks at the most powerful person on the planet at the time with the most powerful military at his disposal, and he looks at him and his twisted, evil, venomous Jezebel wife. (laughs) That's what Jezebel means in Rob's translation. Uh, And he looks at the two of them, like if there's a Jezebel here, which would be crazy, I'm so sorry. Uh, But he looks at the two of these evil leaders, and he says to them, Baal, huh? The god of the rain? Riding on the clouds? Leading all of God's people to worship Baal, okay? Well, the god, the real god of all of the universe, is going to make sure that not a single drop of rain falls on the earth. Not a single drop an ounce of dew anywhere on the planet until I say so. See what Baal does about that. And then God goes to Elijah and says, now I want you to set up your ministry headquarters. I want you to write a couple books. I want you to go on a speaking tour and leverage your influence for my glory. No, (laughs) none of that happens. This guy just had one of the most courageous, bold moments, maybe in history, speaking to some of the most crooked leadership in all of history, speaking boldly to their faces, saying, You think your God's got power? You have no idea what's about to happen to you. And then God says, Don't go leverage that to become famous. He says, No, I want you to go hide. I want you to disappear for a little while. And I want you to know that I'm going to provide for you. So, what in the world is God doing to start out this incredible ministry of Elijah that we'll study all summer? What is he doing in this moment? And I think it's, this is what he's doing. He's saying, before you have this giant showdown with Baal, before I use you to do incredible things in your life, I need to make sure that you're dependent upon me for your strength. I need to make sure that you understand, left on your own, you are weak. But dependent upon me, I will be your strength, and I will provide for you. And so he commands him, and he tells him to go and live by this brook, and to be provided for by God. I was talking to my father-in-law, David, about this uh, this past week. And he gave me a really good example from Scripture. You begin to notice that this picture of Elijah here where God is saying, before we do anything with you, you need to learn dependency upon me. is a pattern in Scripture. Uh, and he used the example of John the Baptist, and I just thought this was excellent. Do you remember John the Baptist? Uh, when you start reading the Gospels, the cousin of Jesus has this ministry going before Jesus begins his ministry. And John the Baptist has hundreds, if not thousands of people following him to listen to his teaching. Just crowds all over the place. People come in from all these distances to hear him preach and teach. I mean, this guy was good. And then he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, and then Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jesus shows up, and John says, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandal. I shouldn't be the one baptizing you. And then John says, or Jesus says, no, you have to baptize me. So John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And through all of that, John, the gospel writer John, reveals to us that something begins to take hold in John's heart, where he begins to learn what his purpose in life is. And he has one of the most profound statements in the entire Bible that he says summarizes his approach to life. If you're someone who highlights in your Bible or underlines things, you might do that. John chapter 3, verse 30, uh, John the Baptist says, when it comes to my life, he must increase and I must decrease. Everything should be about him and not about me. He should be in the spotlight and not me. I should elevate him and not elevate myself. It's all about Jesus. But the odd thing is, after he says that, where is he given the opportunity to live it out? You remember the story, Herod has him arrested. and He's thrown in a prison cell for the remainder of his days. So he's He must increase and I must decrease. Okay. In a prison cell with no more crowds. No more people coming to hear you. No more attention. The place where you're going to learn what that really means, John, the place where you're going to develop your deepest dependency and your most intimate connection to me is not in front of tons of people. It's alone. Where it's just the Lord and John the Baptist. And he's learning what it means to really depend on God for all of his strength. See, look at how Elijah responds to this command. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Now, this is verse 5. So here's what's fascinating. You're going to notice this all summer long. That's a phrase that you're going to see play out in the life of Elijah over and over and over again. For Elijah, he says, and he went and did according to the word of the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to him, or he was obeying the word of the Lord. And for Elijah, the most important thing in his life, the thing where he got the, the greatest amount of his strength in his moments of weakness was the word of the Lord. And it was an honor and a privilege for him to take in the word of the Lord and then live according to it. So that's what happens here. He says, so he hears from the word of the Lord and then it says he goes and does according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. And after, the bro- after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. This is a fascinating development here. So he says, go down by this brook and I'm going to provide food for you through the ravens, which is not the animal you would have picked, right? Like, hey, if I'm getting food delivered to me, I don't want this nasty dirty bird. I'd pick a different kind of animal. But God is showing him that this bird that would represent like death and like, not, not good things is, is going to be, he's, I'm going to provide for you in ways that you can't understand, Elijah. So go, and I've commanded them to come and bring you the food. And so that's exactly what happens. God fulfills that promise for him. And then, water begins to dry up because elijah is out and away from the people now what's fascinating is this elijah's out and at this brook for three years for three years this isn't like god is teaching elijah dependency god is teaching elijah that he must have an intimate connection to him in a microwave it's not like hey hit the 30 second button the popcorn will pop and you'll be good to go it's like no for three years He spends time depending on God, waiting for what's next. God, you made this bold command that this is what was going to happen, and it takes three years for this to be fulfilled. Three years of depending on God every day, waking up, where's my food coming from? Three years of developing an intimate connection to the Lord before God decided to do anything with it. And it seemed like in all of the land, God was silent because no prophets were speaking for God during that three years. And God was silent, but not in the heart of Elijah. God was speaking clearly, preparing him for what was next, but wanting to make sure that before he did anything with him, that he was dependent upon him for his strength. You see, in those three years, Elijah learned one of the most important lessons any of us can learn in our life. It's whatever rules your heart directs your life. Whatever rules your heart is going to direct your life. For three years, Elijah went through... A boot camp learning that, depending on God, depending on God, depending on God, waiting and waiting and waiting. And so the question that came to me as I'm studying this all week, and I could not shake this, was this. What does it really mean? I mean, what does it really look like to depend upon God? What does it really mean to depend on Him? Not... Not to come and sit and just listen to somebody once a week. Not to just open your Bible every once in a while. Not to listen to a podcast or read a devotional book. None of that's bad. But what does it really mean to say, God, I am dependent upon you. Without you, I'm weak. I need your strength. I'm not capable of this. So I'm not going to rely on my own intellect and what I think I know and how I'm smarter than other people. I'm not going to rely on my own strategic ability to lead. I'm not going to rely on my own giftedness. God, I need you. What does it look like to really depend upon him? And it kind of hit me. See, in this story and so many others in Scripture, it seems to me that God is in the business of using waiting to teach dependency. God seems to be in the business of using waiting to teach dependency. Look at a few examples from Scripture. You remember the story of Abraham? A promise is made to Abraham in the book of Genesis, and that promise is this. Abraham, from your line, I'm going to bless all the world. You're going to have children upon children upon children. The the, uh, The problem is that promise comes when he's so old And his wife is biologically beyond any capacity to have children. And God says, hey, wait for me. Because at the right time, I'm going to give you the children that you need. And Abraham, instead of focusing on the impossibility of the promise, he focused instead on the one who made the promise. Look at how Romans chapter 4, the words of the Apostle Paul, talk about how Abraham sorted through this. Verse 19, chapter 4, it says this, "...without weakening in his faith... He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. That's pretty descriptive. Like, you're so old, your body's eh, it's not a lot coming from your body. Like you're just kind of like good as dead. And since he was about 100 years old, and that his wife Sarah's womb was also dead, it's not like fading, it's not like not doing well, not like this would be really hard, dead, dead. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. I mean, he made a lot of mistakes along the way. He wasn't perfect. But along the way, he just focused on God. He was strengthened in his faith, and he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God did have the power to do what he promised to do. That God would come through. Here's what I think Abraham learned. He learned this, that the longer that we have to wait for what we're looking for, the more time we have to consider how we're powerless to do it ourselves. See, the longer I have to wait for what it is I'm desperate for God for. God, please, please, please. The more time I have to figure out I can't do this, I'm not in control, and I'm fully dependent upon him. What about Joseph? Later on in the book of Genesis, this young man is given a dream, this crazy dream where he's told that everyone would bow before him, including his brothers. And then, like a genius, he told his brothers the dream. Right? And he has this encounter. Now, if you're a good brother, you're going to beat your brother up for that, right? I have a little brother. If he said, hey, God gave me a dream, I wouldn't even let him finish. I'd just tackle him, right? Don't talk like that. Uh, but God gives Joseph a dream that he's going to have everyone bow before him. And then 13 years before that dream was ever, before that promise was kept, 13 years of being dragged through slavery, beaten, Forgotten, left for dead, deceived, lied about, lied to, and left in a prison cell. Forgotten by two people who promised they'd remember him. And it's through those 13 years that Joseph learned a very valuable lesson of dependency. God, this promise you gave me, I thought I could just tell my brothers in in my own power, my own strength, my own giftedness, I can lead, I can do this. And I just jumped into your dream, but I realized over the last 13 years, Joseph had to learn this lesson. He couldn't do it. He wasn't good enough, strong enough, smart enough, or gifted enough. He needed God, because only God could keep that promise. He comes to the end of his story, and you get these powerful words that he speaks to the very ones who betrayed him after learning that his real strength came from God. He says these beautiful words in Genesis fifty twenty. He says, as for you, you betrayed me 13 years ago. You left me for dead. You intended that for evil, harm against me. But God, God intended it for good, and I've learned that over 13 years that I wasn't ready, but 13 years of depending on him. And he's used my life to save the lives of so many other people. And I never could have done that without him. Perhaps the most vivid example is the life of Jesus. It's the life of Jesus. Do you remember when his ministry began in Matthew chapter 3? Lots of celebration. Jesus comes, his ministry starting. John the Baptist, who we just talked about, baptizes Jesus, and the voice of God comes. And God's voice says, This is my son. And he brings me great pleasure. The pleasure of God on Jesus. And the very next thing that happens to Jesus is what? Matthew chapter 4 tells us that he's led out into the wilderness to be tempted. See, it doesn't continue with a loud bang. It's, no, before Jesus does the healing, does the teaching, does the resurrecting, he's modeling for us the importance of depending on God for everything that you have. Everything. And not relying on your own strength. And he models that for us. Look at how Matthew lays this out. Matthew chapter 4, he says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's an understatement. He was very hungry in a moment of physical weakness the dependency the source of his strength would be put to the test and satan's greatest desire was to get him to fail in that moment and ruin all of history so satan shows up on the scene and what does he say to him he says if you are the son of god well what did god just say one chapter earlier this is my son and satan comes in and says well if you really are the son why are you hungry turn these stones into bread and eat, and and Jesus' reply is just beautiful. He says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, the most important part of Elijah's story here is not that he was fed by the ravens, but that he obeyed the word of the Lord. It was the God who sent the ravens, not the ravens. It was the promise kept. And Jesus right here, just think about how incredibly powerful these words are. Man shall not live by bread alone, meaning your most important source of life is not physical. It's not your physical life here, but you are fed deeply, spiritually by the word of God. That is the most important thing for you to depend upon. That in your moments of weakness, that is what will give you the strength that you need. And so we look at Abraham, we look at Joseph, we look at Jesus. What about us? What, it, what will be said of each of us? Just really think about this. That we depended on the most for our strength. We depended on the most for our life here while we are alive. Is it going to be that we tried harder, that we worked harder, that we were smart enough, that we were strategic enough, that we read more books, that we could outsmart other people, that we won debates or that we voted the right way or that we made enough money? What's the source of your deepest strength? What is the source of your strength in life? Is it your own abilities? And to really wrestle with that, let me ask you this. Let's say you're in business. You have to close a business deal. Do you pray? Sounds trivial. Sounds gimmicky. When you're making a really important decision in life, are you stopping for a moment to pray and say, God, I think I know what I'm doing here, but I want to depend upon you. I want to make sure that I'm making the right decision. I want to depend on you, not on my own strength. When you're picking a spouse, when you're picking someone that you're going to marry, have you stopped and said, Father, please, I want to make sure that I'm making the right decision. I want to make sure that I don't marry Jezebel. I want to make sure that I, I, I pick the right person and that we serve you with all of our life. I've talked to countless high school seniors who cannot wait to tell me everything about their college decisions, where they're going, what they're going to do. And a lot of times I'll stop and say, have you prayed about it at all? Have you even sought him in any of this? You sure he wants you to go there? Well, no, but like I'm going. Good luck. Where is the source of our deepest dependency, the source of our deepest strength? My wife and I were driving uh, home last night from a a wonderful event, an engagement party. I'll let the person who got engaged, I'll let them tell you about it. But uh, it was awesome. And uh, this is the second time in like three and a half weeks we got to do that, which was awesome as well. And we get in the car, and uh, it kind of hits us. My head at first, like we have been talking before we got in the car. About how we can't, man, one day we just want our kids, like how cool would it be to be at an event like that and just watch our kids have made the right choice and how deeply we want that in our lives. Got four kids, Caleb, Abby, Luke, and Noah, and I want nothing more. We, I mean, I just so desperately want them to pick the right person. And so we're getting in the car, and I'm like, all right. Uh, in my head, though, here's all honesty. Let's just be quiet. It's 10 o'clock at night and i got to preach in the morning, and I'm just going to drive and just mentally go over my sermon. And then the Holy Spirit punched me in the throat. And I came to and realized in that moment we can talk about what we want, and we can try to manifest that, we can try to direct that, we can try to raise these kids that make these great decisions. And I'm talking about how bad I want it and haven't sought the Lord. And I'll tell you this, I don't do this nearly enough, but I just said, hey, Sarah, we got to pray while we're driving. Because we can't. We can't create that. We, just, we have to depend on him. And so I prayed for our oldest. She took kid two. I took kid three. She took kid four. We just prayed. Like, I, I can't do this. I can't. No parenting book, no expert, no person who's done it really well can pull it off. What about every other area of our lives, guys? Like, really, are we dependent upon a guy on a stage while we sit in a seat and stare? Or a podcast or a devotional book? Or or is it you and God alone with nobody else around sitting by the brook allowing him to sustain you when you can't do it yourself. Uh, uh, Paul Tripp's an author and he describes what he would say is one of his biggest concerns for the church today and I think I agree with him. I think if you, you do as well. Let's see what you think about it. He says I'm convinced that the biggest crisis for Christians is not that we're easily dissatisfied but that we are all too easily satisfied. We have a regular and a perverse ability to make things work that are not working and should not be working. We learn to adjust to things that we should alter. We learn to be okay with the things that we should be confronting. We learn how to avoid things that we should be facing. We would rather be comfortable than to hold people accountable. We swindle ourselves into thinking that things are better than they really are, and in doing so, we compromise the calling and standards of the God that we love and serve. That's all too often. We're not dependent upon him, but in our own ability to manifest results. And so we're going to do whatever it takes to do that. And we don't stop. You see, Elijah's story is fascinating. It's incredible. But the first seven verses are vital. They're essential. Dallas Willard once said, Most people don't wake up nearly as hungry for the word of God as they are for their breakfast. I think he's right. I don't know where you get your source of strength. I don't, and I can't answer that for you. I don't know what you're truly dependent upon, but I do know this about you because it's true about me and all of us here. It's what rules in your heart. is going to direct your life. What rules your heart is going to direct your life. Let's pray.